the Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Farah Jafar, Chief Executive of the Labuan International Business and Financial Centre, the IBFC, the Midshore Financial Centre in Eastern Malaysia. She is now attracting the interest of cryptocurrency and tokenization entrepreneurs to sit alongside the insurers, the wealth managers and the fund companies that have come to Labuan since it started 30 years ago. Farah, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Dominic. Thank you. Now, as I just said, the IBFC is 30 years old. How does the outcome, as you look around you today, compare with the initial plan that was set uh, back in 1990, particularly in terms of the type of business? Yeah, it's been an interesting ride in the last 30 years, not just for Labuan, but for all international financial centers, really, with the changes in taxation and and, and around the world globally. I mean, it's, it's a complete mindset change vis-a-vis taxation. Now, uh, specifically with regards to Labuan, I think we started 30 years ago um, with the thinking that we would be uh, the conduit for Malaysian companies looking to regionalize and globalize. Really, that was the key. And so our growth has been extremely organic uh, in the sense that we have catered to our domestic market more so in the beginning. And over the years, because um, of our reputation and the need for financial wholesale financial intermediation in the region, we've grown towards um, the regional, a bigger, having a bigger regional presence, as it were, and uh, regional, if not global, recognition. You just said that the plan initially was to help domestic companies regionalize what they were doing. What is the exact legal and regulatory status of the IBFC within uh, Malaysia as a whole? So if you look at Labuan, uh, if you look at Malaysia with one country, two systems, that's the best way of understanding it. So you have the domestic system, which is under the Central Bank of Malaysia, run by Central Bank of Malaysia alongside the Malaysian SEC. And then you have Labuan. Labuan ranks uh, Paripaswa as a statutory body uh, under the Ministry of Finance of Malaysia. And our focus is very much international, anything uh, non-ringgit denominated generally. Now, you mentioned also the international business you've started to attract. And Asia has, of course, become the workshop of the world. You've got these massive volumes of physical trade uh, taking place not just within the, the region, but actually with the rest of the world as well. And what part does, uh, does the IBFC or a financial centre like the IBFC, what part can you play in facilitating that massive and fast-growing physical trade? Well, I think that there needs to be a, a deeper understanding with regards to the roles of IFCs. Uh, generally, you know, I think uh, historically we've been known as these far-flung places that have no substance, uh, rules are somewhat shady. I think that's very unfortunate, really, because what we are um, is really an intermediation center. So if you look at an IFC as the global plumbing of trade, there's no question as to what role we play um, with regards to uh, regionalization, globalization, and physical trade. I think if you, if, if you understand it the way I explain it to my son, who's 10, you know, so when we're in Malaysia, we go to a, a telemachine, hole in the wall, and some ringgit comes out. I use the same card, and I go back to the UK, and um, 
pounds come out, how does that work? It's global plumbing. It goes through financial systems jurisdictionally first, net it off, and then it goes into a wholesale system that nets off globally and then, and, and then arrives wherever it needs to. So our role as IFCs, not just Lombard, but our role as IFCs globally is to facilitate that. And, and globalization will not be where we are today. And the world would not be where we are today if not for the functions of IF, uh, function of IFCs. Mm -hmm. I'd half expected you to start talking about trade finance and, and commodity trading as well. But uh, are those are those activities you're looking to to attract trade finance, commodity trading? Yes, but I'll be completely honest with you in the sense that um, our banks, so we're home to about 60 odd banks in Labuan, which is a lot, which is more than I think some of the jurisdictions in the Channel Islands. Um, but the reason that is, is because they are booking centers for loans. And so a lot of uh, these banks do not have the appetite for trade financing necessarily which is unfortunate. What we're trying to do is encourage it, obviously, uh, trade financing, commodity financing. We're trying to encourage that, um, but you'll find that Singapore still uh, leads the way there. Uh -huh. Now, you, you talked about the unfortunate reputation that, that IFCs have as far-flung places with, with shady rules and uh, ways of minimizing your tax bill, but yeah. you have to differentiate yourself. There are, I think, 100-odd um, financial centers in the world. Just yeah, how do you... How would you differ, how would you differentiate yourselves from the other 99? It's quite simple, really, in the sense that we're part of a larger um, country. You'll find that a lot of these centers um, rely very heavily, their, their GDP relies very heavily on um, the business of IFC, as mm -hmm. it were. Um, for loved one, that's not so much the case. I think uh, if, you know, I... I wasn't there 30 years ago when they set it up, obviously. So I'm, I'm supposing based on the information that I have, the idea was really to facilitate Malaysian companies going out, as I said earlier, number one. But number two is really to grow the island as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, how we differentiate ourselves is that we are a mid-shore centre in the sense that our roles are flexible, we're proportionate, but yet at the same time, we adhere to the global standards with regards to regulation, supervision, anti-money laundering, terrorism financing. You have to remember one thing. Labuan is part of Malaysia and Malaysia is assessed by all multilateral organizations. And Labuan is assessed along with Malaysia. There is a natural check and balance that applies onto Labuan by the Malaysian MOF. You know, Labon is never ever going to be the Achilles heel of our peer review. So that allows a very safe environment for real businesses that need wholesale intermediation. And that is how um, we have distinguished ourselves. And to be honest with you, um, this push in global tax transparency has helped us because there's been a flight to quality by the users of these centers. So we benefited tremendously. On that tax point, are there are there tax advantages, and by which I mean corporation tax or uh, turnover tax, capital taxes, whatever, are there tax advantages to being based in the IBFC? Yeah, so we're, our tax is 3% um, or zero for certain investment-linked holdings. So pure passive investment attracts no tax. Uh, trading and all the rest of it uh, uh, attracts 3%. There's no stamp duty, there's no dividend tax. Um, so it's a very, very physically neutral environment. However, we are extremely 
careful with the kind of business we allow in, number one. Number two, there is, of course, now a requirement for substance. So it's no longer, and you'll find IFCs are no longer just mere pass-through jurisdictions. We require um, man, uh, you know, boots on the ground, physical presence. There is actually, and we are actually the only jurisdiction in the world, as far as I know, which has, uh, the Malaysian parliament has gazetted an order dictating for every single license and entity in Labuan the kind of substance requirements that's required in order to enjoy the 3% tax skin. Right. Now, something else you need in financial centres is uh, is professional advisors, by which I mean accountants and, and lawyers and actuaries and so on. Is it easy to attract those? Are you able to attract them? And how appreciated are they when they get there? There are uh, tax accountants and lawyers in Labuan, but you'll find that a lot of the advice that's given um, is actually given out of Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Malaysia, onshore, right? Um, but what happens is there are company secretaries, what we call TCSPs, Trust and Corporate Service Providers, that are set in Labuan um, that then offer their services together with aud auditors and all the rest of it, yeah. I think I'm right to say that the Lab One legal framework is English uh, common law, just like Singapore. And you've, you've mentioned Singapore more than once. Um, how does your relationship with Singapore work? Are they a competitor, a complementary service, um, a, a kind of part of a cluster of, of uh, economies that attract business? How does it work, that, that relationship? Yeah. So just going back to the fact that we, we you know, Malaysia, as part of the Commonwealth, uh, uh, has a common law system. Having said that, however, when you uh, utilize a structure in Lombok, you're able to choose the laws that govern you or whether it be ADR, in fact. So we allow for alternative uh, dispute resolution, uh, common law, civil law. There's people who come in and say, no, we want to use civil law. A lot of the Japanese that use Labuan um, decide to use civil law system, and that's completely fine. It's absolutely flexible. Together, we're, we're quite legally agnostic, as it were. That's what we say. Um, and then currency agnostic as well. So you can use any currency uh, you fancy, really. Um, Singapore, this is a question I get asked a lot. And really, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a big believing competitiveness. We feel that Lawan's grown because Singapore has grown. Um, it's a very complementary role that we play vis-a-vis -vis Singapore, and we're quite happy to play that. So in a lot of instances, um, as Singapore grows, there is a lot of trickle business that comes into Labuan, and collectively as a region, uh, the pie just gets ever bigger for all of us. Now you you use this, this term midshore, and um, you you made clear what that is. One of the, one of the things that makes you midshore is that you are embedded inside this larger um, state, if you like. Um, you have a separate regulator from Malaysia. You have this Labuan FSA, and how does that? work with the regulators back in in Malaysia as a whole, the Securities Commission, the Central Bank? Yeah, so we, we rank Paripasu vis-a-vis -vis the Ministry of Finance. So it's under statutory bodies, all the statutory bodies under the Ministry of Finance, um, number one. Number two, there's a lot of co coordination uh, domestically under with the SEC, the Central Bank of Malaysia, and the Laban Financial Services Authority. So, for example, the Laban representatives from the SEC and the Laban, um, sorry, and the Central Bank of Malaysia sit on the board um, of Laban FSA. There's a lot of coordination, uh, a lot of 
I believe anyway that, uh, and you'll have to ask them personally, but I believe anyway that Labuan is seen as a test bed for a lot of stuff that will then, once it grows, uh, is moved onto onshore Malaysia and Islamic finance is a classic example of that. And how does the FSA work with the, with the IBFC? You obviously have to strike a balance between uh, being innovative, attracting business and so on, and, and the need for that business to be regulated in order to retain your reputation. Is that relationship very easygoing? Is it, is it working at lots of different levels? Is it day to day? Well, it's, it's quite normal, you know, Dominic, for uh, centres like ours, uh, you know, Jersey, Guernsey, um, BVI, we all have them. Um, and we act as the market development arm, uh, fully funded by the regulator. Um, our role is, and, and, and it's fully funded by the regulator, but completely separate. So there's a separate board where we have industry body uh, represented and, you know, in order for it to be really uh, industry uh, friendly, in order for us to act as the app really between the regulator to the market and the market to the regulator. It's a very different mindset from onshore domestic jurisdictionally bound regulatory regimes. So yes, the relationship is quite seamless. Right. Now, you mentioned that Labuan is something of a regulatory sandbox for Malaysia as a whole. One of the differences between Malaysia and Labuan is that Malaysia has exchange controls, Labuan does not. Uh, I don't know whether that's part of the experimentation going on, but how does that in day-to-day -day terms mean that Labuan works with the rest of the Malaysian economy? Does it mean that you have to do business in foreign currency, not in ringgit at all? Well, Yes, I mean, historically, that was the case. But then um, the OECD decided that that would be ring fencing. So we now allow ringgit to be traded in Labuan. Having said that, what the revenue in Malaysia, and it's important to note, and this is, this, is, this is key, that the revenue of Malaysia is also the competent authority for all things fiscal in Labuan. So we have a unified fiscal approach and policy. That is really the check and balance as well. Mm -hmm. um, and what has happened is while you are able to use Ringgit in Labuan, there will be an internal withholding tax to ensure that there is no arbitrage between offshore, midshore Labuan and onshore Malaysia. Right. And in terms of the balance of business that you're doing, you did touch on this at the outset, but I don't know if you can put numbers on it. What proportion of the business you're attracting uh, to the IBFC is domestic Malaysia and what proportion is is international? Gosh, that's a tough question because we're almost 900 license holders in, 30 years in, right? So we've got 900 licensed financial institutions in Lampuan. Um, It's a huge ecosystem. It grows, you know, it grows every day. Um, it really, that, that ratio really depends on the business you're looking at. Um, so banking, I would say maybe 60% domestic, 40% foreign. Um, insurance is almost 70% foreign, 30% domestic now. It used to be the other way around. So as our approach uh, towards regionalization and our attractiveness as a center, especially for Asia, in, enhances, the, the, the proportionality of Malaysian business goes down. Dominic, are you there? Yeah, we, I think we'd lost, uh, we'd, we lost you at some point there, I'm afraid. Um, oh, okay. So, could we... no, we'll edit that out. So, just keep going. 
Thank you. Well, I, I just want to uh, repeat that that question actually, Farah, just to make sure we we catch it. It's a, sorry, it's a, it's a it's an annoying question, but I think we should repeat it so we have a seamless link there. So I'll ask it again. Okay. Um, what proportion of the business that the IBFC is attracting is uh, is domestic, i.e., from within Malaysia as opposed to international? And I suspect the answer to that question is quite complex, but uh, can you put some numbers on it? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely complex because we're nine hundred licensed entities in after our thirty years. So it really depends on the kind of vertical you're looking at. You know, so for example, in banking, I would say sixty percent is still domestic, forty percent is foreign. Um, in insurance, for example, 70, almost 70% 70 is now foreign and 30% is domestic. And when we started 30 years ago, the numbers were, were inversed. So really, as Labuan grows in recognition regionally, the pie grows and the level of Malaysian involvement by percentage reduces. And this is something that we, you know, we encourage, obviously. Now, one of the things that we're driving internationalization is digitization. We talk about the digital economy, we talk about growing volumes of digital e-commerce taking place across national borders. But if we look just at the at, at Malaysia as your domestic uh, base or adjunct, it, how digital is the Malaysian economy and does its level of digitization matter a lot to, to Labuan? Yeah, so I think, you know, it, with COVID, the level of digitalization has shot through the roof. Um, that's for sure, domestically in Malaysia. Does it affect loved one? Yes and no. Uh, no, because, you know, obviously our marketplace is much larger than just Malaysia. Uh, number two, if you were to trade with a Malaysian retailer, you would need a domestic license, not a loved one license. So only qualified investors in Malaysia who are Malaysian citizens, domiciled in, uh, domiciled in Malaysia are able to use the loved one offering. Um, having said that, what has happened is that a lot of the domestic players, digital players, are now moving out of Malaysia, going regional, and that's where Labuan comes in. So I'll give you an example of that. Policy Street is, uh, is a fantastic example of that in the sense that they started out giving out quick uh, insurance cover, micro insurance cover um, for the grab, you know, the, 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 like the, food delivery boys, the delivery, the delivery boys. Um, and what has happened through that is that they've grown so much that they're now looking at a regional footprint. Through their regional footprint, they were recently licensed in Labuan um, as a reinsurance uh, insurance company. Um, and via that, they are able to now get into JV partnerships with domestic insurers in different markets in order to then distribute uh, their lines. So yes, uh, it is important, but the Labuan element is important vis-a-vis -vis Malaysia only when Malaysian digital players get to the size where they're looking out of Malaysia. Well, I, I asked that question partly because Labuan's obviously identified digital finance very broadly conceived as a huge opportunity. Um, and, and I noticed in your in your materials, you do tend to use the term digital rather than than fintech. What what is that? What is that telling us? Well, you know, I, to be honest with you, our digital uh, digital journey has been very exciting. We we were brought into it kicking and screaming in 2017, thinking we were enough verticals to worry about. What is this digital space? Um, and then very quickly we realized that this is the way forward. 
um, and that we need to try and understand it a little bit better. So we started out calling everything fintech. And then we realized that fintech is just a small sliver of what digitalization is all about. So the, the idea of using the word digital as opposed to fintech just denotes the sense of a holistic approach towards all things um, digital, really. Um, and, and, and that's where our uniqueness in this space lies, because the regulator has taken a stance where the ethos is that everything in Labuan can be digitalized. So you've got, you know, six acts that um, allow for all the license holders to be based in Labuan that allows for their licenses. And all these licenses can be a digital version of that license. And I'd like to stress why that's possible. And it's possible because number one, obviously we have a very forward looking regulator, but more importantly, because we're a wholesale financial center, we're able to allow for experimentation, live experimentation without a sandbox. And what happens is that the regulator has a very um, keen interest in the business plan of all the license holders coming in. So they come in and they say, explain to us how that digital wrap will look. Because we believe the business, the, the, the function of the business remains the same. However, delivery and management of that business could be digitalized. And that is the element that we need to understand. Of course, the regulator is, in, in my mind, extremely forward thinking in, 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 in this, number one. Number two, making sure that it's supervised and enforced well um, is, is something, is a challenge they're willing to take up. Can I ask you about that, that point you've just made about, about sandboxes? You, it's, it's interesting that you have, in a lot of financial centres, including London, in fact, like to, to put forward these regulatory sandboxes, you know, come and play in here and we'll see if we, we like your business enough to give it a full licence. But you've clearly chosen this different path, which is comply with these existing regulations. Um, are you finding that's attractive to, to, dare I use this term, the fintechs? Actually, that you just comply with what the rules are and you don't have to go through this... Uh, playpen stage yes but what has happened is that we've also got additional requirements for them so it's it's not necessarily a free ride uh you know we've got additional requirements so for example very basic examples of fit and proper for directors also include some kind of digital experience right and then the business case the ekyc requirements the client segregation all that the onboarding uh the digital sign off you know, there, there, it's not as simple as just show me how it's going to work, but, you know, those at are, every single level, sorry. Those are on top of the, the existing regulations. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. So we do, you know, we allow for innovation. We believe in proportionality in regulation. Uh, we believe in innovation, obviously, but having said that, there has to be very clear check and balances to ensure that this just doesn't go all wrong, you know, because, it's, it's very difficult to regulate something that we don't all completely understand, right? And that it moves so quickly. And I think that's the other thing that, 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 that the regulator is, you know, is, is keen on ensuring is that they understand the technology behind it as well. Um, licenses, Can you, you've mentioned that, them more than once. Can you explain to us a little bit more about the, the type of licenses that are available. I've come across the money broker one and the credit token license, but there are probably other types of licenses as well. What do these, um, what are the broad types of license and what do they entitle people to do? 
So you have your money broking license, which basically allows for a crypto exchange, right? Because if you take that, if you take the notion that crypto is money as a token of trust, really, which is what money is, um, an exchange for crypto. Uh, exchange for crypto really is an exchange for money. And so money exchange, the money broking license is the crypto license. The tokenization, the utility tokenization is that tokenization uh, license. Um, and then you have your payment gateway license. You also have a securities dealers license, which will allow for dealing in securities um, on the premise that a digital security is a security nonetheless, right? Um, and then you have your fund management license, your box standard licenses that you have everywhere. Those are also able to be digitalized based on that business plan. On top of that, we also have what we call a super 134 license. This is the license that has been given to the Labon Financial Exchange, as well as Fusang Exchange. These are primary and secondary uh, listing venues. Um, the Labon Financial Exchange is actually owned by the National Stock Exchange. Um, and what they do there is that they are governance, basically they act as a governance listing for a lot of sukuks. Um, I know for a fact that they're looking at digitalizing it at, to, in one way, shape or form. On top of that, we have the Fusang Exchange. Fusang Exchange is the first exchange after the LFX Exchange, the Labon Financial Exchange, um, that we've granted the super license to. And what they are doing is that they're tokenizing um, and issuing a lot of uh, digital asset backed um, securities on this exchange. Uh, talking of that, uh, talking of the LFX, which as you say is is owned by the, the Bursa Malaysia, um, what is the, hey, what is the value of the LFX to the Bursa Malaysia? Is it a kind of experimentation um, arm, like a lot of what goes on in, in, in Labuan? Um, point one. Point two, I've noticed that, that, that Bursa Malaysia and LFX have been experimenting with, with tokenized bonds, and I wonder where that experiment has got to. There's a lot of international interest in that. Um, I, I wouldn't dare speak on behalf of Omar, who is the CEO of Bursa Malaysia, but from my understanding, uh, LFX is really a governance listing uh, exchange where all the sukuks are listed in order to ensure governance of that uh, of, of that particular issuance, right? I think what they're trying to do with that is really create a, and, and, and as a governance listing venue, there isn't a secondary value to it. So what they're looking to do, I believe, again, is they are looking to tokenize these bonds to create a secondary market. So it's more digestible. I mean, really it's, it's the democratization of the bond market via digitalization, if you look at it. And I know for a fact that Fusang is also looking at something very, very similar. You mentioned the Fusang exchange, uh, which has clearly set out its aim to attract uh, security token issuers. And it was about to launch a tokenized bond itself with the China Construction Bank a year or so ago. I don't know what happened to that, but it seemed to be postponed. What's the, what is the, what is your view as, as IBFC of the potential for, for the center of tokenization of securities and asset-backed tokens as well? Do you see these as big axes of growth for you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was very unfortunate what happened because CCB, uh, China Construction Bank, is a huge bank based in Labuan as well. So the bank, we actually gave our first digital banking license to China Construction Bank 
um, more than a couple of years ago now. And uh, they actually run CCB's balance sheet out of Beijing through Labuan. The idea was to really uh, allow for financing of the Belt and Road via Labuan. Right. Um, and then they obviously met Fusang and they thought, OK, let's let's do this together. And I think what has happened with that issue, that, that initiative is that it was actually the first victim of the PBOC's clampdown on uh, digitalization. Um, and, and now with everything that's happening, it seems quite clear that this was always in the works. Now, with regards to tokenization of bonds, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there is a lot of value to be had. Um, in democratization of bonds uh, via tokenization and digitalization. I mean, you know, the beauty of digital, all things digital, is that you're able to cut and slice and dice it um, based on more bite-sized, um, bite-sized uh, uh, sizes, really, you know, for it to be more bite-sized, number one. Uh, number two, the digitalization also allows for a very clear audit trail via the DLT. So it allows for transparency in a, what some may say historically been a bit of an opaque market, you know, the, the book running and the book building and the issuance and, 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 and all that. So really, I think that's quite interesting. I'm also, you know, you know I'm also... I believe, I believe the environment is so key for us. And I think, you know, the ability for us to also issue some kind of asset base, tokenized asset base on the carbon market would be quite interesting because the carbon contracts now are so large. Um, and with the growth now and the size of the price of these carbon contracts, it's a matter of time before you're looking at a digitalized carbon, a digitalized carbon market. I'd like to ask you a slightly, slightly unfair question about uh, just staying with those bonds on 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 blockchain network experiments. Uh, they did see a continuing role for central securities depositories (CSDs), whereas part of the sales pitch of the enthusiasts for issuing bonds onto blockchains is actually don't need the CSD anymore. You simply issue the bonds directly into the digital wallets of of the investors. Right. And the blockchain ledger itself, you know, yeah. ensures the registers up to date and so on. Um, what was the was this a regulatory thought? Uh, why was the CSD retained in in the Malaysian experiments? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the one thirty four license, which is what Fusang and LFX have, um, mm -hmm. there is no requirement uh, that is actually imposed on them. This requirement is a self uh, is a requirement from self. Right, because they run their own exchange. It is a full-fledged primary and secondary exchange. So their listing rules will be deemed, will be determined by them. Um, I suspect the CSD requirement, the central depository requirement would be something that Bursa is probably more comfortable with because they have a CSD system in place. Yeah. Um, and you know, it begs, you know, I know it's your cheeky question, but the cheeky answer to that is that, you know, this, this perennial question as to whether legacy finance and digital finance, whether the twain shall ever meet, because I think it's an ethos issue. I know for a fact that from my dealings with Fusang, they are not gonna have a CSD requirement at all. It's gonna go straight into the wallet because they yeah. are, uh, a, a purely digital. They don't carry with them legacy baggage necessarily. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see how that all pans out in the longer run. So anybody who wants to set up a, a, a bonds on blockchain network in Labuan wouldn't, under your rules, have to have a CSD. It was a... No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. okay. Now, M Malaysian law 
um, has tended to encourage crowdfunding. Uh, which is the thing which you know gave birth to, first to ICOs and uh, and that has now morphed into decentralized finance or or DeFi. Have have you as a as the as the IBFC formulated an attitude? I don't know when ICOs were going on back in 2017. There was this boom going on. Whether you formed an attitude then, which has persisted. How open are you now to to DeFi businesses coming to the IBFC? Are you cautious about that, or are you open minded about that, or I think there's a lot of understanding that needs to happen with regards to DeFi. I think, you know, um, I've never really, well, yes, I've worked in a regulatory body before, but I've never been a regulatory. Uh, so I don't really understand, uh, I, should, I should caveat that, I don't really understand the ins and outs of the regulatory mind, I should say. Um, but I think the concept of D DeFi in itself uh, is something like Web 3.0, for example, right? Uh, is something that the regulators need to get, to get their heads around um, because it's com it's completely juxtaposed against what is normal, what is seen as normal in legacy finance. So as far as we are concerned, um, I guess we will look at each and every application. We don't necessarily at this point in time have a stance vis-a-vis -vis DeFi uh, as such with regards to deregulated exchanges or DAO um, I think there are quite a few initiatives going on using our foundation, our private foundation, as a DAO uh, vehicle, really, because it kind of um, aggregates out control uh, via the council. And it's very uh, similar to what's happening in other IFCs. So the DAO is the foundation, the structure, which is a high net worth uh, tool, high net worth uh, in ultra high net worth tool, uh, planning tool has been used for DAOs. Um, and we and I suspect that will happen in Labuan soon as well. But with regards to DeFi, we don't have a policy stance at the moment. But cryptocurrency, you 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 are open to. You, you've got this money broker license, which uh, applies to to cryptocurrency exchanges. Presumably, it's the same license for cryptocurrency brokers, right? And you've got cryptocurrency funds. So the regulator is okay with that. It's the type of business yes. you you have been attracting. Would like to continue to attract. Is that right? Yes. Yes. In fact, that's our single largest. Um, growing space as well, together mm -hmm. with uh, the investment banking licenses, digital mm -hmm. investment banking licenses. And is the interest driving those, those cryptocurrency service providers in Lab One coming from all over the region? It is coming predominantly from Asia. Um, we're seeing a lot of interest out of uh, certain startups in Africa as well, and some in the Middle East. So for example, Facet, which is uh, quite a large group in the Middle East, recently uh, took up six licenses in Labuan in order to really grow, in order to be able to offer what they need to offer. So we believe in a, in a stackable toolbox. So you, what you do is you just layer one license on top of the other to get your end product. So that we do, we, you know, I mean, as part of Malaysia, if we were to come up with new, a new act to just look at digitalization, that would have to go through the Malaysian parliament. Mm -hmm. So what we what we encourage users to do is to stack those licenses in order to achieve operationally what they would need. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, as part of Malaysia, um, the central bank in Malaysia, Bank Negara, is, is exploring a central bank digital currency, a CBDC, uh, and it's involved in experiments for the use of CBDCs uh, for, for cross-border payments as well. Do you think that presents an opportunity for, for the IBFC, for Lab One? 
think CBDCs are quite unique in the sense that whilst uh, the, the space of digitalization is quite borderless, and I think this is where there's a natural synergy between IFCs and digitalization because both do not respect jurisdictional boundaries, right? Having said that, CBDCs are very much domestic driven. So, you know, um, I believe it would encourage digitalization, obviously, especially walleting among the general population. Um, having said that, whether it's going to have a direct impact as to into Labuan, I doubt it because this is this is going to be something that's quite retail um, and not wholesale. Now we've talked a lot about um, about fintechs, about digital businesses, about cryptocurrencies, and so on, but. The IBFC also hosts plenty of, of, of conventional, traditional financial businesses, particularly insurance. Now, what's what mm. you mentioned this earlier, how you've turned it around from domestic to international, in fact, the type of business you're attracting. Um, what, is, what, what, what has turned that around? What's the attraction been to those international insurers? I think originally um, they were using Labuan as the first right of refusal for all Malaysian business. Having said that, they started to understand that the Labuan insurance legal regime is extremely expensive and there is a lot of different licenses to be used um, in order to facilitate regional business. All Labuan insurance license holders are also allowed to have presence in Kuala Lumpur. And as a center, Malaysia is extremely cost efficient. So what you'll find is a lot of insurers, reinsurers, brokers use Labuan and take advantage of being able to be in Kuala Lumpur as their regional base. So really it is a, a almost a virtuous cycle, a virtuous uh, combination, I should say, mm -hmm. of Malaysia being the center of Asia, the low cost environment, the multilingual talent, um, the tax efficiency in Labuan and the availability of all these licenses. So, you know, it, it's been, we've been very lucky in this, in this space. You mentioned uh, an, an, an insure tech that you attracted earlier as well. Are you, are you attracting a lot of insure techs, these sort of new startup insurers to of Labuan? Late, mm, of late, more so. Um, originally, we, uh, our first insure tech was in 2017. Um, it was an entity called Asena. Uh, who have renamed themselves the Igloo. They're now in Series A, I believe. Um, so that's great. We've got quite a few others as well. We work very closely with the Singapore InsurTech Association, the Singapore Blockchain Association. We know that there is a lot more um, InsurTechs in Singapore as compared to Malaysia onshore. Um, so our, our focus is there. But yes, we definitely would are looking at expanding our presence in uh, legacy insurance into the insurtech space, for sure. Now, funds are another uh, so-called traditional business which are a focus for you. What sort of funds are you attracting and what are the incentives for them to come to the, to the IBFC? Again, it's an issue of substance. So I think, you know, funds is quite interesting in the sense that, you know, you take a Cayman fund, you take a Singapore fund or Hong Kong fund, Labuan fund, they're exactly the same. So these are not public funds, obviously, these are private funds, uh, PE funds, any kind of funds that you'd want to use. The requirements are absolutely the same, articles exactly the same. Um, we have then the, the partnership uh, structure to assist with that. We also have the protected cell company for funds. So that's an umbrella fund vehicle where each cell is uh, bankruptcy remote from each other. So we have a lot of structures uh, that are available in Labuan. 
Now, the attraction is really the fact that our substance requirements for funds, very clear. As I said earlier, they're all gazetted. So there's no, there's no guessing game with regards to, is my substance sufficient in order to enjoy this tax rate? Again, I go back to the core point of, you know, as we're talking about legacy uh, licenses and legacy uh, issuance, um, I go back to the point of the fact that the, the tax environment globally has changed tremendously over the last five years. And now everyone needs to ensure that mind, matter and management is at the jurisdiction where this tax is paid. Um, you know, tax is no longer an issue of efficiency. It's also an issue of equity and fairness. Is it a fair amount of tax to pay? What are your substance? Uh, what is your substance contribution to where you're enjoying this tax? Uh, at. And because of Malaysia's central location, our cost efficiency, the availability of all these structures, again, we have been a very fortunate um, recipient of interest. I've been wondering how, impo how important the geographical location of Lubuan is. It's extremely important. I mean, you know, when we did initial research, we realized that the word Labuan came from the word Labuhan, and in Malay, that means port. It, we're home to Asia's deepest natural port, physically. That's why it's such a huge supply base uh, for the oil and gas of the Borneo uh, cliff, you know, the, the Borneo seabed. Um, so yeah, Labuan has been a huge, has been historically a port of call and it's, the, the growth of it is now in financial services as well. And does that geography help to explain why the ASEAN Infrastructure Fund came to Labuan? The Asian Infrastructure Fund is a fantastic fund. I mean, it's run by the ADB and it's committed by all the Asian uh, states. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to create, to actually, you know, back it's, oh, let me see. It was set up in 2011. That's a long time ago now, a decade ago, um, where the word inclusion wasn't even, you know, the buzz that it is today. And really the idea was to enhance inclusion if I were to retrofit it, uh, by enhancing infrastructure projects uh, within ASEAN. And was our location part of it? No, actually what happened was at that point in time, uh, the ASEAN ministers, um, Malaysia was hosting the ASEAN ministers and we said, no, let's use Labuan. Labuan is a neutral environment. So all the different countries could then um, endow into this fund in their own currency. Uh, let's not forget the cost and risk of foreign exchange. Using an intermediation center like Labuan will allow you to mitigate that cost. So the first project that the AIF uh, actually rolled out was to create a little bridge, well, not so little, but a bridge in, uh, in Burma, uh, Myanmar, I should say, excuse me, in Myanmar, um, that joined two little villages that, you know, where they had family that haven't seen each other for years. And, you know, I know my face lights up when I talk about it because it's the idea of financial services being able to really bring people together and seeing it hit, you know, rubber hit the road. It's fantastic. It gives, gives me goosebumps till now. So, yeah, we're very proud of the AIF um, and, and the work that we've, you know, how we've assisted the AIF in ensuring that, you know, there's more inclusion within ASEAN, for sure. Now, there is a, there's a third uh, stream of traditional business you're looking to attract, which is the wealth management, private banking. And like, like insurance, like funds, it has this uh, digital component to it. You've attracted the 
the, the fintech bank, for example. So how important yeah. is, as let's call it wealth management, how important does that become as a growth area for you in recent years? Well, we are, when we look at wealth management, there are different tiers, obviously. So there's mass wealth management, there's affluent wealth management, there's ultra high net worth wealth management. And our focus is very much into ultra high net worth wealth management. So, you know, we have purpose trust, special trust, very much like the Channel Islands do. We have a private client foundation. So all that is key. Obviously, we have our protected cell company that a lot of um, users are starting to explore using for family office requirements. The growth in family offices in Asia has been tremendous. Um, so we have all the structures, all the solutions that's required, and we are increasing. Uh, there is a there's an in, an increase in in interest. Obviously, the digitalization aspect of it um, is something that's that really depends on the families using. Uh, uh, these structures, because it could be that uh, there will be an element of investment into digitalization, for example. The structure itself is a legal structure that doesn't call, uh, in the, the, the issue of digitalization is not part of it because it's a legal, it's a legal document. It's a legal structure. So the foundation, for example, the setting up of a foundation um, doesn't need a digital element. However, the running of a foundation or the investment um, mandate of that foundation, the private client foundation might, and we allow for that, obviously. Mm -hmm. Now, Malaysia is, is, a, is an Islamic country. How important is Islamic finance to, to the IBFC and how do you go about attracting it? Islamic finance is, is a bedrock. For what we do. I mean, we are home to the world's first sukkah. Um, we were the sandbox, as it were, for Malaysia's uh, leadership in Islamic finance. A lot of what happened originally in Malaysia happened in Labuan first, including, you know, uh, Islamic windows within commercial banks and how that's run. So yes, Islamic is key for us in the space of digitalization. Um, Islamic is something that we are looking to really, so you'll hear a lot more from us next year vis-a-vis -vis Islamic uh, finance and digitalization. Um, in fact, the regulator is meant to issue a strategic blueprint sometime next year. Um, and one of the key trusts of that is Islamic digitalization of financial services. Can I ask you about your attitude towards what, what we at Future of Finance call open data, a concept by which we mean consumers own their personal data. They make that available to organizations they want to buy things from. Uh, companies may even have to pay those uh, consumers for access to that data. And we see this as, as a component of a spectrum of, of uses of data, which, which eventually reaches digital identity. So everybody has a personal digital identity, uh, which they can use. And you can start to, to tie, for example, digital assets to those digital identities. So instead of using private keys, that asset belongs to you because it's tied to your digital identity. Are these things you're thinking about at the, the IBFC, open data and digital identities? Hard one. That's the hardest question thus far, actually, Dominic. In the sense that I think we are very much driven by the needs of our license holders. For as long as there's going, for as long as we can ensure that there is 
a check and balance with regards to uh, regulation, with regards to requirement on beneficial ownership. And I think the issue of beneficial ownership is something that, you know, digital identity somehow needs to come together. Um, yes, all well and great that, you know, instead of a wallet, everything's tied to your personal identity and you have, you know, you allow for your identity to be, um, I guess, quote unquote, used in that way. Having said that, there are uh, current rules in legacy finance that require beneficial ownership registry um, to be held by use, uh, to be held by intermediaries and the regulator. So it's a complex question. If a potential license holder were to come to us and say, "Look, you know, we're going to issue a fund. Uh, our fund is going to be issued, blah blah blah, and we're going to allow for digital identities." We're going to say yes, but please get a sign off uh, by those people. How are you going to use that? The beauty of wholesale financial intermediation is that there isn't uh, an undoing and nitpicking of the details. Um, and that allows for that innovation. So I guess if I were to hazard a guess, I would say that yes, this would be something that would probably begin in international financial centers but there would have to be some kind of a coming together with regards to international rules on beneficial ownership and the parameters of reporting of that beneficial ownership vis-a-vis -vis multilateral organizations. Um, because again, right, uh, the, 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 the base, as it were, is the issue of anti-money laundering and terrorism financing. And this is, you know, if you talk to uh, regulatory uh, guys, their biggest problem is not the digitalization. Their problem is making sure that digitalization does not dilute the AML CFT requirements. Um, so you're taking that question one step further, right? By asking about digital identities. And uh, you know, my, my answer is, I don't know. Having said that, the I, I can foresee that the biggest issue would be, right? Um, streamlining that with beneficial ownership relation uh, requirements that then gets crossed across borders yeah to ensure that 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 money laundering is nipped in its bud so you you have to you, you have to work across national borders uh, not just to attract international business but actually to make um laban an attractive center does it ever make uh, any deeper regulation does it ever make sense for you to work hand in glove in conjunction with other international financial centers as you're trying to develop um, policies that will be attractive to international businesses to come to lab one does it ever make sense to work with the other centers or are you so competitive with each other that it never makes sense so there are two parts of the question i think the regulators have long uh, have a long history of working together um so you know we, ju we just we just we just had a had a launch uh, to commemorate, uh, we, we had an event yesterday to commemorate 25 years of the regulator. And, you know, we, we had the, the head of the regulator from Guernsey, Jersey, you know, long-standing relationships because they need to exchange information with each other. We've had numerous uh, license, potential license holders that have not received their license or full approval based on um, information that we've received from other regulators. This is how we keep everyone at bay, as it were, you know, 
So yes, uh, exchange of information between regulators is important. Now, with regards to jurisdictions, um, we feel that it's important as well. And let me tell you why, because unfortunately or unfortunately in this era of globalization, regionalization is getting more and more important. And we, as financial centers, when I speak to my peers, everyone agrees that you know, location, location, location is key. And that's one of the reasons we signed up uh, in an MOU with Qatar. Um, I met yourself in Turkey, actually, like a couple of years ago, and we, and we said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could do this for our license holders? The idea is really, if two uh, jurisdictions get together and we create an environment where the license holders are able to cross business, it grows as opposed to, and both of us grow, right? As opposed to just having what you have domestically or regionally, you're able to then uh, work together in a safe environment, knowing uh, that the authorities are talking to each other and not just the regulatory authorities, but also the market development authorities. So yes, I'm definitely one for all boats, uh, all uh, all boats, you know, the tide, right, the tide, raises all boats, for sure. Um, I don't think there's, there's, competition among offshore centers is fierce. I will not kid you. But I think uh, there's definitely room for partnerships, especially uh, partners that are not in your geography and not in your specific vertical of interest, because there's a lot to be said about cross-selling. Now, in, in, engage, in engaging in that fierce international competition with other centers what are the what are the ways you go about that I, I don't mean what things you emphasize you know why come to level one i mean technically how do you sell the ibfc abroad what methods are you actually using well yes we say come to level one is a great place uh number one <laughs> but actually you know what makes an ifc i think we go back to that core question of what makes an ifc and what makes an ifc is its laws is guidance, is practice notes. So for us, the discipline is ensuring that our rules, our regulations are up to date. We compete um, with regards to legislation and guidance. The responsiveness of the regulator, uh, the cost efficiency, obviously, um, but fundamentally, right? It is the legislation and the provision of all the unique structures and solutions that are, um, that are come into being by this legislation. One last question for you. Uh, you could look back on 30 years. It's been a considerable series of achievements. What about looking, I don't know whether you can look 30 years ahead, that's probably too much, but if you look 10 years ahead, what do you, what would you like the IBFC to look like then? I would personally, I can only answer personally, obviously, I wish I had a crystal ball, but um, I think that I would, I would like Love One, personally, I would like Love One to be extremely sensitive towards inclusion within Asia. And I think there's a lot to be said about the role of wholesale financial intermediation towards enhancing inclusion. And yes, you know, um, you know, they're crazy rich Asians, but having said that, there are so many destitute Asians. And, you know, I think the distance between the have and the have nots in Asia is Banman globally. 
if you look at Africa, um, I think the distance is less so, but in Asia, especially in countries like Indonesia, around the Mekong River, Philippines, the, the difference is just, you know, the, the have and the have nots, the distance, the distance is too far. And I think there's a lot to be said um, in the usage of structures, the unique structures that are available um, in centers like ours in order to enhance inclusion. And I'll give you an example, the protected cell company. We know for a fact there's a protected cell company that has been set up in order to provide microinsurance for seaweed farmers in Indonesia, right? And these are the things that we like to encourage um, and we like to see, uh, you know, because it's, not, you know, the, the way I've, I've been, you know, I've been called this socialist capitalist quite a few times now, but, <laughs> but I'd like to see a situation where international financial centers are able to facilitate this level, enhance at least this level of inclusion globally. So that's what I'd like for. That's what I'd like for loved one. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I was going to. I was going to say. I thought it was my last question, but actually, what you're saying is deeply counterintuitive. People wouldn't normally think of of international financial centres as contributing to, to financial inclusion. But you've you've mentioned it more than once in this conversation. I think you published an entire paper on it as well. Yeah. Um, no. I mean, look. Let's think outside the box, right? The 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 largest cab company owns no cabs. And the largest hotel company owns no rooms. So is it so difficult to imagine a situation where inclusion uh, is a mandate for all wholesale financial services centers? I mean, at the end of the day, right? If there are more people who are able to afford more globally, the business of financial intermediation just grows. I don't think we are at that stage where we should be now um, worried about the size of the pie that we have, I think we need to grow the pie. And unless we grow the pie, we're all just going to get crumbs. So what's the point? Mm -hmm. That's a lovely note to end on. Farajah Pass, thank you very much indeed for taking time to talk to us. Thank you.